0: Thanks for pressing play. If you love the serendipitous magic that can only occur in a real, authentic conversation, you're in the right place. This is Christopher Lockhead, Follow You're Different, and we are the Real Dialogue Podcast, or many people call us an oddcast, for business leaders and category designers with a different mind. Now, over the recent past, we've all been through one of the craziest, most challenging times in modern history. we've had to contend with the impact of a global pandemic uh, being in fear for the health of our loved ones, ourselves, our community, our country, our world, a crazy economy, a horrible war. And so the reality is simultaneously we've had to negotiate all of these things inside of the context of dealing with our personal lives, our businesses, our careers, And any life challenges that we may have had along the way. Said in a different way, over the last uh, three years or so, we've been through a lot. So we thought that it would be great to uh, welcome back the legendary Amy Morin. She was one of our very earliest guests. And in less than a decade, Amy has become one of America's most popular uh, psychotherapists and uh she 's just got that special quality she 's a person who is radically human, incredibly smart and compassionate and empathetic and and surprisingly approachable and maybe that 's why I think she 's become america 's uh top or one of the top psychotherapists and a multi time best selling author and she 's got a great uh, well, it 's not so new anymore a great podcast that she does from her boat in, uh, in Florida. Well, her latest book is out and it's called the 13 things mentally strong people don't do workbook, a guide to building resilience, embracing change and practicing self-compassion. And we dig into all of it by the end of this episode with Amy. First of all, I think you'll feel better. She always makes me feel better. She just has that kind of effect. And you'll also gain some practical, tactical insights into how to increase your mental strength because if you believe what Amy does, and I sure do, mental strength is a muscle that you can build and you can become more flexible with. And uh, that's what we're gonna get into today. Now, most CEOs have a tough time answering the most important question in business. Are we going to meet, beat, or miss on revenue? And in tough times, The inability to answer that simple question can be devastating. According to research from my friends at Clary, the average company has 14.9% revenue leak. And revenue leak is this uh, revenue that you've earned, but, but somehow falls between the cracks. Now, in good times and in bad, every drop of revenue matters. So if every drop of revenue matters to you, visit clary.com, C-L-A-R-I.com. And there, um, they have a revenue leak calculator that you can try to see how much revenue you might be leaking and what you can do about it. That's C-L-A-R-I.com. Now, as Joey Ramone said, hey-ho, let's go. Well, Amy, I couldn't be happier to see you. How are you?
1: I am great. Thank you so much for having me back on your show.
0: Well, and can I tell you, um, I think you knew it at the time, but in case you didn't, you were one of our earliest guests. You were one of the first top authors I wrote uh, out to as a cold call. And, and I, I've loved your work when I cold called you to come on. And I've loved you more even since. And you've continued to write so many number one bestsellers and help so many people. And and so I just need to tell you off the top, I'm so ecstatic for your success because I think you make a difference to many, many, many people.
1: Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. And I've done a lot of podcast interviews, but I was just talking to my podcast producer a few minutes ago about your show and how I can remember just as clear as day as being on your show again because you're a great interviewer. So I appreciate all your kind words, and thank you for having me back.
0: Well, thank you. And I wore – I don't know if you can read my T-shirt. I wore this specially for you.
1: I appreciate it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Very stable genius. My wife, Carrie, got me this, and I think it – I don't know. It it, (laughs) – It just makes me laugh every time. And so I figured I was digging around in my drawer. I said, I got to wear my very, uh, uh, very stable genius T-shirt today for Amy.
1: I love it. Thank you.
0: (laughs) So um, you've written all these books since you originally came on and you have a new workbook out. And uh, interestingly enough, I mean, you're the, you're the woman of our time. I mean, you started writing, of course, before COVID and you'd had your initial big success And then the world went into this, I was going to say conundrum, but it doesn't feel like it does it anywhere near the justice that it did. I mean, at times it felt like an existential threat and many of us lost friends and loved ones. And we've all gone through this period together and we have tremendous economic uncertainty. We have uh, political uncertainty like we have not seen in many years in the U.S. We have the first war in Europe in almost a hundred years. I mean... It doesn't take much to get freaked out today, does it?
1: (laughs) It doesn't. And if you really want to add to the mental health crisis, like let's lock everybody in their houses and put the news in front of them 24-7. So not only can they not go anywhere and do all the coping strategies that they used to use and not can they not go see their friends and family and get some support. Instead, we're going to lock you in your house and make you watch a lot of TV and (laughs) consume a lot of news. (laughs) And we're going to put on the scariest news ever. Like, wow, what a recipe for uh, mental health problems right there.
0: Yeah. I mean, when you're locked in your house and you feel like you're handcuffed to cable news because you want to know what's going on and you're Googling how many COVID deaths there's been since the last time you Googled it, which was probably less than 24 hours ago. Right. And, you know, many of us, of course, love some people who are older and were uh, in the heavy duty strike zone and still are for COVID. Mm-hmm. And so it's sort of, you know, somebody who lived through and was an adult through nine eleven. it felt like the nine eleven day and the three or four days after that extended for a very long period of time.
1: Yeah, it did. Right. I mean, it was surreal. Something that I think a lot of us were used to the fact that, yes, our individual worlds could change overnight. We've all gotten one of those phone calls where you lose a loved one or something tragic happens and your world changes. But we've never seen like the whole world change overnight. And as it unfolded and like the thought of, okay, we can't leave our houses and we're not going to be able to go into our jobs or we're going to be turning on the TV and watching death tolls day after day. Like nobody would have believed that this was going to happen. And then yet here it was. And it was all unfolding in front of us. And and then we couldn't go out and get the support that we normally would get. And it was just a very strange time. And now even looking back, you think like, did that really happen? It's, for most of us, it's this kind of a blur where every day sort of blended together. And then as you say, it's not like life has magically improved, even though <laughs> we're now able to go out and do things and uh, life has gotten back to some kind of normal. At the same time, it's not the same normal place that we were before the pandemic.
0: It sure doesn't feel that way. And I, I, geez, I wish I had saved it. I saw a research report on a, uh, in the news recently talking about something like 70 to 80% of Americans say that uh, life is permanently different post COVID for them. That's sort of the feelings that were being expressed. Does that jive with things that you have heard?
1: Yeah, I think that's right up there with what I would say. Uh, I'm hearing from people and people who are saying, you know, if anything good came out of COVID, it's that uh, we talk a lot more about mental health now. I think pre-COVID, people seem to think you're either mentally healthy or you're mentally ill. Those are the two categories. And like COVID really showed us like, actually, we're all susceptible to we're mental health We're all nuts now. <laughs> Even you thought you weren't and- nuts?
0: This will make you fucking nuts.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But showed you like you just have to subtract a few things and all of us start to struggle, right? Like, let's take away your ability to socialize. Let's take away your ability to maybe go to the gym or to get exercise or to do those fun things that you like to do. All of your stress relief is now going to be contained to like your living room. And let's see what happens to you. And for a lot of people who thought that they were immune to a mental health issue, we're suddenly realizing, gosh, it sometimes doesn't take much For me to start struggling, or if I had a little anxiety before, it's really heightened now, or if I maybe had a relationship problem, it really came to light during COVID when we either couldn't talk to people because we couldn't see them or people, families were arguing over stuff or people and their partners were locked in the same house thinking, oh my gosh, we can't get away from each other. So I think for a lot of people, it was eye-opening.
0: Well, and let me ask you personally, if I'm not mistaken, it looks like, and I listened to your podcast. Matter of fact, I just listened to your uh, Kelly Slater episode. Thank you so much. He's one of my absolute heroes.
1: Really? I love him. So to be able to talk to him was just a wonderful thing.
0: Yeah, I only met him once very briefly. He is friends with my brother from another mother and co-author, Al Ramadan, who's a big guy in the surfing world. He's the chairman of Save the Waves and so forth. And so Al knows Kelly and has helped him a little bit with the wave pool. And he's been on a few surf trips with him and stuff. So I sort of feel like I know him through Al. But anyway, I really appreciated your episode. And I I thought, you know, one of the gifts that you have, and obviously you're a therapist, so this is a gift you've developed, but you really do get people to open up on your podcast. And, you know, when he shared about how he and his girlfriend are in therapy sometimes and, Some of his challenges, you know, I've I've heard a lot of interviews and read a lot of interviews with him, and I've never seen him, particularly as an introvert, be as open as he seemed to be with you.
1: You know, it's interesting. Sometimes when we just tell people, hey, we're a mental health podcast, we like to talk about all things self-improvement, sometimes it doesn't take much other than that statement and people just start talking and they'll tell us things that maybe they haven't opened up and told anybody before. And it's almost like you just give them the invitation to say, yeah, let's talk about that. Or we all struggle. Um, Yeah, I find people are often very willing to talk about it. And I'm so grateful because in the past, I think a lot of people would talk about it as though they'd overcome it. So somebody, a celebrity might say, well, I struggled with depression in my 20s, but 20 years later, I'm doing amazing. And nobody really ever said, and I'm still struggling or it's an ongoing thing that I battle. And so I love now that so many people are opening up about that. They're not saying like, I once had that problem and I'm cured. They're saying, here's what I'm doing every day to take care of my mental health. And here's why I have to keep an eye on it. And here's what I'm looking for. So I love that we get celebrities and experts and authors and people that are otherwise look like they're doing well. Holy
0: shit, lady, the people you're getting. (laughs) I remember when you first came on and I thought you were so wonderful. And I think I told you if I didn't, I sure should have that you should podcast yourself. And so when you started your own podcast, I was stoked for you. And now to see what you've achieved, the conversations you have, the kinds of people you're having them with. And so I don't know. Let me ask you this question. What's it like being a podcaster um, as opposed to being a therapist?
1: Oh, yeah, that's a good question. And nobody's asked me that. So that's what I like is you ask questions nobody has asked. It's interesting, because sometimes we'll get somebody on our show and they might start to cry. And you know, I have like the therapist in me that wants to respond one way. And then I'm like, but there's people listening. So you need to respond in another way. And so I'm always very aware of that, like, oh, am I going to respond to this a little bit differently? And I want to be empathetic. But at the same time, I don't want to open up a can of worms for somebody who forgets that this is a podcast (laughs) and then it ends up on we just interviewed Jewel this week and right now we're on the front page of like foxnews.com with her story and I don't want to ever make it seem like we're getting them to open up in a way to then take advantage of them. So I always want people to be reminded this is going public, but we've never had anybody who's asked to edit it after the fact or anything like that. And there's been a couple of times when I've offered to say, are you sure you want to make this information public? Cause I don't want people to again, feel like in their most vulnerable state, I asked too many deep questions, but even when we've offered, nobody has ever um, taken us up on that.
0: That's awesome. You know, I think you're, I think you're doing what, Uh, in my opinion, Oprah Winfrey did many, many years ago. To the best of my knowledge, she was the person who mainstreamed uh, talking about some of this stuff and sort of made it okay. And you you can have whatever opinion you, you like of her, but I think a contribution that's hard to deny is that she made talking about life and struggle and challenge and mental wellness and so forth more mainstream. The interesting thing, though, about you compared to her is you're doing it with podcasting.
1: Yeah. Well, first, nobody's ever compared me to Oprah. So to even be have somebody say that in the same conversations. Amazing.
0: No, but you make it okay (laughs) for us to talk about this stuff.
1: That's what I really wanted to do. And I wasn't sure when we started it in the beginning, we leaned more towards authors, experts, And um, and then kind of opened it up to celebrities just to say, "Eh, let's see what happens. And we thought originally that some of the celebrities might just kind of gloss over. Yeah, well, I struggled once or I had a panic attack once, but kind of gloss over it. But we've been amazed. And now we're getting a lot of celebrities that reach out to us asking to be on our podcast because they want to open up about these things. And the amazing thing is a lot of people maybe have been in the news to talk about certain things. Kelly Slater has talked about mindset, obviously, or what it's like to still be surfing. But I think we're the first one where he really talked about going to therapy and that sort of a thing. So to be able to open that door and have people say, yeah, I actually want to come forward. And they've all said very similar things. Like I want, I know if I'm struggling with this, other people are too. And it seems like in the past, Sometimes people who were celebrities or people who were doing well almost felt guilty to say I'm struggling with depression or they sometimes got shamed on social media. Years ago, Justin Bieber talked about his depression and I remember tons of people were saying things like, oh, it must be terrible to be rich and have all this stuff. No wonder you're struggling with depression and mocking him for struggling with a mental health issue. And I think we've come a long way since then to know no matter how much money you have or how much fame or how many amazing opportunities you have in life doesn't make you immune to a mental health issue.
0: Yeah. And, you know, and Kelly talked about it in your conversation, which I, uh, I really was glad you went there and he was willing to go there with you, which is when you take the thing that you love and you make it your profession, do you ruin it? And that's, that's such a fat to me, we could talk about that for 10 years. That's a fascinating right. discussion and how he at times resented surfing. And, and I think one of his most famous quotes is um, surfing is my religion
1: yes yeah I really wanted to know that because I've heard from so many people like you should monetize your passion but then I hear from other people who are like you know I don't want the business aspect of my hobby or I don't really love to turn, I like knitting. I don't necessarily want to sell sweaters. I just want to knit. (laughs) And so I was glad to be able to talk about that. And then what does that do to your brain when something you love also becomes something that you make money on? And is that a good idea? For some people it is obviously, but for other people kind of takes the joy out of that thing that you love.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, it was a rat hole that I came this close to falling down with uh, podcasting and, and, and I didn't. Um, and so I'm glad I didn't let the economic side of podcasting get in the way. And the minute it started to look like it was a hairball, I said, no more hairball. Um, because I think that's at least for me, uh, with podcasting and writing, I don't want to be motivated by the economics. The economics are always important, always, but I don't need the economics on those things to, uh, to live and even if I did, um, you know, for, for example, I can't stand in the middle of a, of a long form dialogue podcast when they cut in the middle and there's a zip recruiter ad. Right. And I know why they do it. And we could make a lot more money if we dropped ads in the middle of our conversations. But I don't want to do that because I know as a listener that that fucks it up for me. And right. so so anyway, and there's lots of small same thing with our newsletter. You know, our newsletter Category Pirates is now um, in the top five uh, paid business newsletters on Substack. It's an amazing achievement. And we get people reaching out all the time, wanting to sponsor and run ads and all this stuff. And people pay for the newsletter and we're just like, well, we could double the revenue overnight. And these people are already paying and fuck that. If I was paying for Category Pirates, I I wouldn't want to see ads on it. So why would I make you suffer from that? So...
1: Right. Money can definitely affect your decision-making and figuring out like, you know, once you take that leap, then yeah, you have to make some tough decisions sometimes.
0: And for me, it's just, and I'd be curious as to your thoughts on this, it's the difference between the long game and the short game. Uh, We just celebrated six years of podcasting. And in June, I will celebrate my seventh year as an author. And I plan to continue writing and podcasting um, until you put me in the ground. And so, you know, there's been things that I've done that have not been popular that hurt our downloads and things like that. And I don't give a fuck. I mean, having a healthy amount of um, not to give a fuck fuckitude, particularly when you're doing these sorts of things, I've, I have found to be very powerful. I'm, I'm curious you live in this world where there's a bazillion people today, Amy, giving pop psychology, meme psychology, bullshit, random, obvious, stupid, harmful in many cases, uh, advice, claiming to be coaches and have nowhere near the background that you have. All these things. You live in a world where there's lots of maniacs who propose to be the quality of individual you are. I'm curious how you think about all of that.
1: Oh, good question. Again, it's kind of maddening sometimes. So actually I did a podcast not too long ago about the seven worst pieces of mental health advice you'll get on social media because a lot of people are really good at marketing and they come up with this mental health advice that's terrible, but it sounds good or it sounds catchy. So people, it gets made into memes and people share it and it goes kind of viral and it's not good advice. And so there are times that it's tempting, like, wow, if I hired a marketing team or I had people to do my social media, or if I had people who did all of these other things, yeah, maybe I could, I could, uh, gain some popularity too. But no, at the end of the day, I value my inner peace much more than those other things. And I think, what's the point? Like, I'm good. Like, I've been able to write books, I have a podcast. If other people want to watch these other, People that are really good at marketing, like, that's okay. I'm okay with it. But I also wanted to make an episode about it just to make it clear to people, like, just because it's popular doesn't mean it's true. And that a lot of things go viral and a lot of people talk about things, but it doesn't necessarily make it healthy. Of course, this is coming out of my mouth who became an author because I had an article that went viral. So I'm not against things that go viral. And I know that sometimes when you put out a piece of content and it becomes really popular, you can capitalize on that and turn it into something else. But on the other hand, I just didn't want people to blindly, I don't know, believe everything. Like the statistic is something like 80% of the mental health advice on TikTok is bad advice. And when you look at the people who are creating it, like it all sounds catchy. And there's even moments that I'll see something and I think, wow. And then I'm like, no, that's not good advice at all. So uh, yeah, there's that. But for me, it's about just like the inner peace. I want to sleep well at night. And I do that by making sure I'm staying true to my values and what's important to me.
0: Amen. Hallelujah, sister. (laughs) And so maybe let's go to some of those um, bad social media uh, mental health advice? Uh, maybe maybe touch on a couple of those if, if you wouldn't mind.
1: Oh, yeah. So like one that I see that goes around all the time is don't expect anybody to love you until you love yourself. And you see like a variation of that going around all the time that you have to love yourself first. But that actually goes against all the research that we know. We know that how we learn to love ourselves is hopefully most of us had a caregiver in our lives who showed us what love is like and we learned about it. And then we learned to love not just other people, but ourselves. For kids in foster care, kids who grew up in abusive homes, kids who don't have that, that's why they struggle so much in life. But then we tell them, well, you have to love yourself. Well, they've never been loved, so they don't even know enough about love to love themselves. It's not that they like enjoy hating themselves or anything like that. They just don't know what it is or they've gotten a really unhealthy picture of what love is because somebody who loved them was abusive or neglectful or treated them poorly. So then they don't know how to treat themselves differently.
0: Oh, thank you for that. (laughs) You know, we recently had on this man who is absolutely an angel on this earth. His name is Peter Mutumbazi, and uh, he lives in the United States today, I believe in North Carolina, if I'm not mistaken, and he grew up in Uganda in a very poor town, and um, to say that he had a horrible childhood would be to be putting it um, nicely. He grew up in a town where children are not named until they're two or three years old because um, many are not viable. They don't make it and had a radically abusive father who called him garbage. And he ran away at the age of 10 and became a street kid. It goes on. I mean, it just, and when he was 15, a man was kind to him and that man turned his life around. Ultimately, Supported him in going to school, fostered him. And ever since then, all he has wanted to do is be a foster dad. He went to university in Uganda, then in the UK, and then here in the United States. And the U.S. is one of the few countries in the world that allows a single man to foster children. And he's been allowed to foster kids for about six or seven years, Amy. And he's fostered 32 of them and adopted two of them.
1: Oh, I love that story. Thank and you the for man who it.
0: fostered him was the first man, first man, his mother loved him, but was the first man to love him. And so I'm not the learned, um, uh, ed- educated uh, therapist that you are, but Peter's story is emblematic of that. How could you expect somebody who grew up in that kind of an environment to quote unquote, love themselves?
1: And that's the thing. We know it just sometimes takes one adult to change a kid's life. If a kid, even if they grow up in an abusive home, if they have one adult, whether it's a coach, a parent, a teacher, a neighbor, somebody who's kind to them, they don't become the statistics that we often see because somebody teaches them what it means to be kind and to have self-respect and those sorts of things. And I love that story. I was a foster parent for about a decade. Um, and I didn't because know I just, that, Amy.
0: One yeah. more thing to love about you.
1: Well, you know, I just always felt like there are so many kids out there who get a bad rap. And as a therapist, I would see kids who were deemed unadoptable. And these were the kids that were put in the category of, you know, they just can't live with a family. And we have sort of modern day orphanages where these kids go. We call them group homes. And it just broke my heart. So I became a therapeutic foster parent. So I got all the kids that were considered unadoptable. And I was the last stop to try to decide if they were going to be able to, to potentially be adopted or not. And every kid that ever came through my house, none of them were actually bad kids. They, some of them had struggles, but they just needed some some kindness. And I think the people they had been placed with before probably didn't have the skills and tools that they needed. But all the kids that came through us were able to go on to become adopted. And I was just, it was one of the best things I've ever done to be able to to do that and make sure that these kids didn't end up. Because I'm always so sad thinking about somebody who turns 18 and never gets adopted. What would your life be like? You don't have anybody to call for holidays or you don't have any place to go. Or some kids even go to college and the dorm closes over Christmas break and you have nowhere to go.
0: Well, bless you for that, Amy. Thank you. Absolutely. Now, what are some of the other pieces of uh, bullshit that are flying around the Internet to catch your attention?
1: Oh, so another one is somebody says something like, you actually don't have social anxiety. It's just you're surrounded by the wrong people. And when people throw out these mental health terms like social anxiety disorder like no it doesn't mean that you're a jerk and you've surrounded yourself with bigger jerks because like it's not your fault if you have social anxiety disorder it's a mental health issue and the just the mere fact that you have social anxiety disorder means it's pervasive in your all areas of your life at work maybe you can't even have a job or with friends with going to the grocery store so it's not that you're surrounded by bad people and that you choose to surround yourself with bad people. It's that you have a mental health issue that needs treatment. And, but I've seen that one and it gets really popular on the internet where people just want to blame, like you're making poor choices by surrounding yourself with quote unquote toxic people. And that's why you have social anxiety. Nope. That's not true either.
0: (laughs) (laughs) What's another one, Amy?
1: You know, a lot of things about like the hustle and the grind and that you need to be putting yourself out there. And if you just push a little harder, you'll have a breakthrough. And I actually, I don't believe in that one at all. Like I think it's our ego sometimes that makes us not quit. And I'm a big fan of saying you should quit more often and it's okay to quit. If you start out on a goal and you maybe say, I'm gonna tell everybody in the world, I'm gonna run a marathon. But you start training for the marathon and you realize it's taking away from my family, it's affecting my health. Like you don't have to, you can quit. But so many people are out there like never quit and keep pushing hard enough and something great will happen. Nope, <laughs> not necessarily.
0: So you're on one that makes me batshit, and I think the damage done by hustle porn stars in the last decade. There's been no, let me say it this way: uh, no single group has done more damage to young entrepreneurs than those assholes. Right. And I remember seeing a tweet somebody sent it to me from uh, one of the king asshole hustle porn stars, Grant Cardone, and he tweeted. Nobody ever died from working too hard, and so I found the tweet. Somebody sent it to me, and I retweeted it, and I said, "Oh yeah, Grant, it happens so much in Japan. They have a word for it. You dumb fuck. It's called karoshi. <laughs> Stop it." And you know these three sixty five uh, Gary VD as we call him around here because he's a socially transmitted disease. Uh, uh, telling people, you like that one?
1: Yep, I do. That one's kind
0: of funny, right? Telling, right? telling people that hustle is the most important word in the English language. Well, I know from my own life, for the first 20 years of my life, all I did was hustle. Mm-hmm. And I ended up out of shape with no meaningful friendships and divorced at 38. And I was a legendary executive and I had a great career and I traveled two to 400,000 miles a year on the plane. But I got home and my wife looked at me and she treated me like the asshole on the couch. <laughs>
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: And I, you know, I, I had friendships, but nothing intimate, comp- not compared to what I have now. And so there's a real price to be paid for that. And I tell me about what you think the damage there is.
1: Yeah. I mean, and you would see that all the time, like, you know, hustle while they sleep and <laughs> stuff like that. You think, who's giving this advice? Because at the end of the day, like, what's the end goal? Are you trying to become a multimillionaire? And then, so what if you become. 45 years old you have millions of dollars but your health is so poor that you can't enjoy your money or you've ruined all your relationships and you live a really lonely life like is that really the goal does that really matter and i think for a lot of people that's it that they want to become a social media influencer they want to get famous on social media and they think if they just keep doing more then somehow that's going to any day now and um see such a uh Impact that has on mental health from people who struggle with depression or people because they're not taking care of themselves, literally just not sleeping and all they're eating is fast food, that they are battling mental health issues or people that feel guilty about taking a day off from work. And then people will come into therapy and they want me to fix them, but you know, I don't have a magic wand. It's your lifestyle. And knowing that it's okay to take a step back and pause and to just say, like, what's the end goal or the end of my life? What am I going to be proud of? Or what would I hope people would say about me? And when I'm gone. Or when I'm 90 years old and I look back over my life, am I going to be like, I am so glad I worked all that. And, you know, when I was working 20 hours a day, that was an amazing portion of my life. Like, I don't think so. I think everybody's going to have those regrets of I've worked too much. I don't know that I've really heard anybody who said I didn't work long enough hours. or I wish I would have worked more.
0: Yeah. And so how do we consume social media, Amy, and not go nuts and not fall prey to this complete garbage?
1: That's just it. I'm not uh, against social media. I use it myself. and I, I actually be love really, social
0: media, uh, right? most, mostly.
1: And it can be a really valuable tool. Like when else in history have you been able to get information and advice and tips and strategies or to even know like what does a, somebody do on a daily basis? Like as an author, people are like, I thought you just sat around and wrote a book every couple of years and then you – took the rest of the time off. I had no idea what actually goes into writing and marketing a what, book. That's, and not, so, that's what
0: I do. Isn't that what you do?
1: <laughs> right. Well, everybody's like, I just thought you're like sitting on the beach 360 days out of the year. And then you <laughs> don't have to do anything I'm like, no, that's actually not the case. But like social media allows me to show people what's it actually like to be an author and we can learn so much from other people. So I always tell people like, this is a really valuable tool that you have in your pocket. If you have a smartphone that can, help you follow really inspirational people. You can have mentors that you've never met. You can join support groups. You can talk to a therapist from your phone. I mean, there's a million and one things you can do with your phone that we never were able to do before. And from apps to uh, you know support groups and forums and conversations. I mean, I learned a lot about podcasting from social media and the internet and learning from other people and writing books. like. When I was a therapist, I'd never even met an author. I didn't know what they, what they did either, but that's a lot of how I learned. So I think we can use social media definitely um, for good reasons. It's just a matter of making sure we're careful about who we follow or what accounts and what we're using it for and how much time we're spending on it.
0: Now, one of the things that concerns me a lot, there's been an offshoot of hustle porn that's emerged, uh, this sort of uh, toxic masculinity type, uh, cartoon character so n- not only do i have all these lamborghinis and private planes which of course i'm just standing in front in front of to do this video i don't actually own. right but i have all these uh, these babes and i have all these pejorative points of view about women and you know with sort of i guess andrew tate being the the ultimate uh toxic category king of toxic masculinity and and i look at this shit and i go there's a generation or at least a segment of a generation of young guys that are listening to this stuff and and wanting to emulate it. Where does this come from?
1: Oh, yeah, that's another good point. And I do think a lot of that is just, you know, the social media accounts about millionaires, billionaires, and living the lifestyle. A lot of that surrounds just what you've said about being rich and having all of these women and then, for women, I think it's all about you know beauty and attractiveness and body image and knowing like how are you gonna live your life or how do you there I just did an interview about um like girlfriends of bazillionaires who live this lavish lifestyle and how they love the fact that they don't do anything all day and they film it to make become influencers just for living a lavish lifestyle for having really rich boyfriends and you know when they ask kids recently too. Like, what's the number one job you want to have when you grow up? They ask kids in China who get a very limited view of TikTok. It's educational material and limited amount of hours per day. And the number one job for the kids in China were was to be an astronaut. And then the kids in America, the number one job was to be a social media influencer. <laughs> and so I think, you know, it's just tough sometimes to realize that a lot of things you see are not real life. And for people that lose sight of that, just get caught up in thinking that, yeah, oh, all these people have private jets and they are off doing all of these amazing things and they don't earn money. They just somehow it grows on trees and it gives people a really skewed view of what life is really like. So I always encourage people to step back and look around, like how many people in real life do you know who live like this or how many people in real life do you know who – look completely different on the internet. If you hadn't met them in person, you'd be like, wait a minute, because you know the real story. But if you just followed them on Instagram, you wouldn't see the other side of it.
0: Well, and the stupidity of the whole thing, you know, I've spent my entire professional life in the technology industry and I've lived in Silicon Valley for over 25 years. And I know lots of entrepreneurs and I know lots of billionaires. I don't know one of them who stands in front of their Lambo with a bunch of gals in bikinis shooting videos about how great it is to be a billionaire. I, right. I, I don't know a one. There's not one Silicon Valley billionaire that I know that does anything like that. As a matter of fact, most of the billionaires I know want to be quiet.
1: Right. Right. Yes. And uh, you know, sometimes I'll ask people that too. Like if think about the most amazing moments of your life and when you were in the middle of the most amazing moments of your life, did it occur to you to live stream it on Instagram and the answer is always no, because I was just enjoying the moment so much. Well, yeah, when, when you look at everybody else's life and they're telling you that they're having the most incredible time ever on their vacation, yet they're putting pictures on Instagram every five minutes. Like, are they really having a great time? I don't think so. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and so how do we deal with this post-COVID world where all of us are kind of freaked out, or at least it can feel that way? It certainly seems to me, and I'm not the Learned person that you are, but you know, people at the grocery store, people on the road honking, road rage, all these sorts of things like everybody just seems a little more on edge now than they were before. I know the young people in my life who were locked out of school for meaningful periods of time, you could tell it's kind of kicked them hard. And so, how do we deal with this moment in time given what we've all collectively been through here?
1: Yeah, I think there's a Two things to do, and I guess it's a spectrum to fall somewhere in the middle is always the healthy place to be. So, I hear from some parents who are telling me, like, my kids were traumatized because they missed soccer all season, or they were traumatized that they missed a whole year of school. Some kids were traumatized kids that didn't have enough food to eat, kids that lived in abusive homes, but these aren't the parents that are concerned about it. But if we tell kids, like, my God, you missed your sophomore year of high school, this is traumatizing, like, you're gonna traumatize them. So I don't think that's the message we want to send is like to try to force that upon people. On the other end of the spectrum, though, I hear some parents who are saying things like, you know, that's great that you got to miss a whole year of school. I would have given anything to not have to go to school for a year. I'm like, yeah, I was one of those people. If I could skip school (laughs) and stayed home, like, oh, I would have loved it, I'm sure. For the record,
0: I I did not need COVID to skip school and go watch the Montreal Expos play baseball. Not at all. Bleacher tickets were a buck. (laughs) And fuck school, we're going.
1: (laughs) Right. But I think, you know, the healthier message is to acknowledge okay, we went through this really weird time. We're all in this together. And yeah, some people are struggling more than others. Some people haven't recovered. And now that we have these ongoing issues in terms of the economy and uh, other stressors, some people are struggling still more than others. Some people financially are doing better than ever in a post COVID world. But to just recognize that we had the same. lived experience, but then our interpretation of that experience or the extended experience of it is going to be very different for some people. And so I think if we just practice patience and honoring other people's feelings and knowing that, yep, some people are really short with, you know, impatient and struggling with more things than others and other people are kind of like, actually, I work from home all the time now and I just love my life and, and that's good for them too. But if we can just take all of that into consideration and then to just pay attention to how we're doing as well, because a lot of people who are irritable and short-tempered right now, I don't think they notice it. They kind of blame the world as getting dumber or... The world's gotten harder, so they justify it. But just to pay attention to our own emotions and check in with ourselves and figure out what else do I need to be doing? Do I need to add more exercise to my to my life to get better sleep, to hang out with more people? And what did I learn from it that's a valuable lesson? And for a lot of people, it was that spending time with friends and family is more important than they ever thought.
0: No, thank you for that. That was great. In that regard, as somebody who is um shall we say, um, has been on the planet for a little bit of time. I've noticed this thing, uh, with older guys, maybe it's true with women, but you'll tell me where many men do seem to get grumpier as they get older. The phrase grumpy old man is a, is a stereotype with some basis. In fact, it appears, is that, is that correct?
1: Yeah, you know, they'll say that both men and women, as they get older, um, you know, don't have time for a lot of the pleasantries anymore. Mm-hmm. That as you get older, supposedly you recognize that, uh, you know, you don't really want to. Somebody asks you to do something, just say no. You don't have to say, "Oh, maybe I'll check my calendar. I'll get back to you on Tuesday," and waste a lot of time. Just say no. The other person can handle it. And so a lot of what we see from research-based things is, is just that, that people feel more comfortable speaking up, speaking their mind and thinking, you know, what's the consequence of not saying this as opposed to just blurting it out and people kind of lose their filter as they get older, for sure.
0: Well, so I've never had much of that filter. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I do notice that if I'm not mindful of myself, that I can slip into a gray place Right. Where I'm not not noticeably in a bad mood or feeling depressed, per se. But but I I am grumpy about a lot of things and there's a lot of things to be grumpy about. But I don't want to turn into a grumpy old man. So, Amy, how do I not turn into a grumpy old man?
1: obviously self-awareness is just the key to it. I think in knowing like, okay, cause I'll find it with myself too. I'm like impatient sometimes. And I'm like, what am I in a hurry for? Like, I don't have anywhere to go. So what does it matter? Or if I get to the gym five minutes later, it doesn't really matter. So I always have to remind myself of that. Like, well, there's really no reason. Um, so I think just being self-aware and asking ourselves those questions and then being proactive about being kind and patient with people so when somebody's waiting on you and they take forever instead of blaming kids these days on their attention spans or for being slow just remind yourself like that's somebody's daughter that's somebody's partner that's somebody's you know grandmother whoever it is but um and I think I find that to be one of the best things is to just remind myself, like, somebody loves that person. And although I don't love this person right now, <laughs> there is another human being out there who probably really cares about this person a lot and try to show kindness in those moments when I don't feel like it.
0: Thank you for that. I, I, I need you to tell me that on a regular basis. <laughs>
1: I wear a T-shirt often that says, be kind. And people are like, yeah, that's important. And I'm like, well, I'm kind of wearing it for myself. Truth be told. (laughs) It's a reminder (laughs) to myself.
0: (laughs) Now you have this new workbook out and I did want to ask you, um, so tell me about the new workbook and how it fits with all of the other uh, 13 Things books.
1: Well, I wrote 13 Things Really Strong People Don't Do nine years ago is when that was it that out.
0: long ago now. Amy? It
1: was. Wow. And so,
0: congratulations, lady.
1: Thank you. You're and com- so over when's, the years, when's the decade anniversary? Uh, so I guess that would be. Mm, it came out in 20 December of 2014. So I guess next year will give us the. 10-year mark so can, it's you, been can almost you promise 10 years. me you'll
0: come back and we'll celebrate 10 years together
1: absolutely that would 10 be amazing years of mental
0: health of mental strength
1: that sounds good to me and i really realized like how much the world has changed in nine years so when i started looking at the facts like nine years ago fewer than 50 percent of people had a smartphone and you know, things like tiktok hadn't been invented and obviously covid wasn't a thing and The planet's really changed. And so while mental strength exercises have stayed the same, the world has shifted. So people want to know, like, all right, how do you be mentally strong in today's world? And I get lots of questions from people who want coaching or therapy or they want more help. And I thought, oh, the workbook is the best way to get that information out there. So in the workbook, there's chapters and exercises that go through the 13 things and explain, all right, if you do this thing, if you feel sorry for yourself, here's how to find out, like here's a quiz that will help you figure out when you do it or why you do it. And then here's some reflection questions to help. And then here's some exercises that can say, when you catch yourself doing this, try this. And every chapter is filled with that kind of stuff. It's not just like a journal to fill in with one question. I just really wanted to walk people through it and teach them the same exercises that I use in my therapy office. But here, here's something you can do. Here's a homework assignment to practice this week so that people can try it and build their own mental strength building plan.
0: Well, you know, thank you for doing it because one of the things that we've discovered in our work around category design is um, that if you present somebody with a new framework, a new mindset, it's very powerful. They like to think about it. They like to mentally play with it. But for it to really take hold, an exercise or a very clear example of how to use this knowledge, this insight, uh, really brings it home. And so I think for people who love your work, having you, it's almost like having you there with them.
1: Well, that's the thing. I mean, the self-help industry is huge, but people often read a book and you feel really inspired while you're reading it and then you move on to the next book. And unless you apply the principles and you start to change your life, nothing really changes other than you feel good while you're reading it. So my hope is that the workbook will really help people say, all right, now how do I put these things into practice and how do I start making these changes in my own life?
0: Yes. Now, it looks very much to me like that is you're sitting on your boat. Is that is that where you are? I am. And so how long have you now been living on a boat?
1: I have been on a boat seven years. So it started as an adventure that was supposed to be about six months. And seven years later, here I am. And on the podcast, I say there's a line on the podcast where I say, hey, we record the podcast right. from a sailboat in the Florida Keys. And lately, so many people have been asking me, like, how often do you go to your boat? And it occurred to me that people don't realize I live on the boat. I don't just show up to the boat and record a podcast episode and then go home. Like, no, this is my home. I'm still here.
0: <laughs> and so uh, what's what's it been like seven years living on a boat in the Florida Keys, podcasting on this boat, writing all your follow-up books, I assume, on the boat or living this lifestyle? What What's that like? People dream of this.
1: It's been amazing. So I was... Uh, Therapist in rural Maine when I wrote the first book, and I thought, Oh, this is good. I get to be a therapist who wrote a book. Like, that's nice. And my husband had always wanted to live on a sailboat, like, ever since he was four years old, his bedroom was decorated in a sailboat theme. And it's kind of like, Yeah, someday maybe we'll live on a boat. But I didn't even know people lived on boats, to be honest. And so, wasn't really something I thought of, but you know, both of our parents had, had passed away at a fairly young age. And I thought, well, wouldn't it be silly if we both said like, yeah, let's do that when we're 70. And then we don't make it that long. And you know, tomorrow's never promised. So it was kind of like in November of one year, we said, yeah, let's do this. So we packed up our Fiat. We had a Fiat at the time. So we put a dog, a cat, my laptop and like, you know, a couple items of clothing. And I moved and my husband had bought the boat. I hadn't even seen it. I'm like, eh, I'm sure it's fine. and um, And we moved on to it. And He was. He thought I'd last six months. He's like, that's fine. We'll just see how long. And then, um, uh, yeah, here we are seven years later and I'm still here.
0: (laughs) And what's it like?
1: You know, it's pretty cool. Basically, it's like a floating apartment and just a small one. And so for the most part, there's not a lot of um, challenges or difficulties. And I'll be honest, I'm not like the best boater in the world. I don't know a lot of things about boating. But... um, But it's a fairly simple, easy life. Like I don't have a lot of stuff and that's actually been quite freeing. And during COVID, like, okay, go ahead and quarantine me on my boat. Not a problem because my boat moves. So (laughs) I can still go swimming and go snorkeling if I want and do lots of fun stuff. So during the pandemic, it was not bad at all. The weather's great, of course, compared to the winters in Maine. And there's like dolphins and manatees and all sorts of incredible things that I see that I would have never normally had a chance to see. And if I was still a therapist working a 40-hour work week, none of this would have been possible. So I'm incredibly grateful that I get to write books and and host a podcast from a boat.
0: It's amazing. And earlier you had mentioned about during the pandemic being locked in in a room with your spouse, you essentially live in, would it be fair? I mean, I've been on many sailboats. Um, I've done a little bit in my life. Uh, Would it be fair to say it's like living in a floating tiny house? Would that be a...
1: Yeah, that's pretty accurate. Yep.
0: <laughs> so, how do you uh, still love a person when you're essentially living on top of them?
1: Fortunately for me, I am married to the kindest, most patient human being. Like, he's just amazing. People ask me all the time, like, what's the most annoying thing about him? I'm like, hey, <laughs> there's nothing annoying about him. And even after being locked in here during the pandemic, like, he's just incredible. Um, so, I'm really fortunate to have him.
0: Well, that's fantastic. I'm sure he's an awesome guy. And I bet you're not uh, that hard to live with either.
1: <laughs> I hope not. I try my best.
0: Now, Amy, is there anything else you'd like to touch on before we wrap?
1: Um, no, I guess I just so appreciate the opportunity to come here and talk about mental strength and for everybody to know there's always things you can do to grow mentally stronger. And um, you're stronger than you think. Your brain plays tricks on you, but we all have the opportunity to build mental muscle every day.
0: Thank you so much, Amy. Thanks for coming back. Thank you for your legendary work. And you're welcome back always.
1: Thank you. I will take you up on that for sure. Well,
0: there she is, the legendary Amy Morin. man, isn't she great? Her latest book is out. It's called 13 Things Mentally Strong People Don't Do Workbook. And it builds on her, uh, her first smash success book, A Guide to Building Resilience, Embracing Change, and practicing self-compassion and you can get it everywhere you get legendary books all right we would like to thank we would like to thank you thank you so much for investing part of your life with us it means the world to me and everybody involved with this podcast uh also i want to encourage you to go to categorypirates.com and there you will find our free course the category design accelerator So if you're interested in category design, you want to learn how to create radical differentiation and design and dominate your own category, go to categorypirates.com and sign up for our free gratuit, gratis free course, the category design accelerator. Also want to encourage you to remember the legendary people at Doctors Without Borders, Médecins Sans Francières, and they are saving lives in some of the most challenging and terrifying places in the in the world, including the Ukraine, Turkey, Syria, and uh, many, many others. Go to doctorswithoutborders.org today. That's doctorswithoutborders.org and crack open your wallet and make a difference. All right, I need to remind you that today's information is provided to you solely for informational purposes, and this Oddcast is the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network. We also wanna remind you that while driving on a highway, uh, particularly uphill, there is very rarely the need to put on your brakes. Um, this oddcast contains content known to the state of California to cause radically obvi- uh, radically non-obvious thinking and new categories and exponential results. All oddcasts do uh, contain nuts, and uh, we record in Dolby ADHD. All rights are disturbed; they remain co- continuously disturbed. <laughs> Don't forget to uh, contact your doctor, lawyer, shaman, accountant, yoga instructor, uh, psychotherapist, and category designer before acting on any of today's information. Mental strength is a muscle you can build. Get building. Do some mental strength push-ups. Everything is the way that it is because somebody legendary changed the way that it was. We are produced and edited by the greatest of all time, Jason DeFilippo. Check out his podcast, Grumpy Old Geeks. Sarah Knox and Jamie J. do our technical execution, and they build Lockhead.com. Show notes by GM Simon. The Bobus brothers, uh, RJ and EX, do our web development. And Cedric Buros does our graphic and web design. Our law firm is Weed and & Jack, and our accountants are three balance sheets to the wind. And we record these oddcasts on technology from our friends at squadcast.fm. Katie Lang was right. Listen to Blue Rodeo. Thank you, Candy Dandy. I love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin. This oddcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go out to Grant Cardone. Sorry, Grant. We just ran out of time for you. That's it, my friends. Please stay safe, stay legendary, and until we're together again, follow your different...